as we continue in our series on Job, the book of Job, headed over to chapter 9. Let me, um, let me remind you what's been going on the past week. In, uh, a lot of you have seen the news, you've seen the reports with Amalda coming through, and it was amazing. It was amazing that some of those people were so afflicted by the amount of water. Reading and seeing and hearing about those individuals who had downpours and downpours and downpours that within a, you know, within a 32-hour period, 40 inches of rain in some of that region. Just amazing. And you, some of them, if you watch some of the news, they were interviewing and they were saying, we just wish it would stop. We wish it would stop. We wish that the flood, you know, that the rain would stop because all the flooding. I can't help but think that maybe Job in this, in the course of one of his conversations isn't thinking that same type of thing. Lord, stop the rains of all these sufferings. Stop the showers of not blessings, but the shower of all these difficulties. Please, please, please stop it. And he doesn't say it that same way, but he says it quite frequently where he says, man, this, this is just overwhelming me. Uh, to just give Job a, a break, so to speak, let's keep this in mind. Job had it much worse than most of us. Okay, Job is suffering, his pain, his agony. He doesn't have the medical attention. He doesn't have all those things that we have at our disposal. He's going through the physical ailment. He is going through loss. You and I, a loss of one family member is just absolutely devastating, and it's true for anyone. Job's is complicated and compounded by multiple individuals, loss of his job, loss of everything. So he is at a different level of torment than most of us are. And with that in mind, we have, we have much more than he has. Okay, he had much less than we have. Job, at the time that this, he's living, Job doesn't have the written Bible like you do. If we understand the history of Job and the timing of Job, Job is probably pre-Moses, which means he doesn't have any recorded scripture at that point. And so he's got very limited understanding and knowledge. He doesn't have a complete Bible. You do. He doesn't have that revelation about God that you have. Okay, he's going by, by tidbits of understanding that God may have revealed that was passed on, but you have so much more about the God and the way God works and how he, how he works. You, you have the indwelling Holy Spirit. Job didn't have that. You have that idea of, of instructing and, and teaching and generation after generation of understanding doctrine and having that developed. Job wasn't in that spot. He couldn't stand on a lot of people's shoulders to be able to grow and grow. And he was in that, some of that first level of understanding of doctrine, that first level or layer of individuals doing study. So you and I have a much better concept, understanding, a handle on a lot of things in life. And even then, with all that we have that is so much more than Job, do we find ourselves confused at times? Do we find ourselves asking the question, God, what are you doing? And, and we, have the, we have the written word that says all things work together for good. We know that. Job didn't even have that verse. And so he's, got, he's in a situation that is really, really, really difficult by comparison. So it shouldn't surprise us that Job at times is going to say things that we say, why did he say that? Because his limited understanding, the trial that he's going through, he's expressing just openly what he's going through. Now, what's going to happen in the section that we're at this evening is Job is going to rehearse what he thinks. Bildad has just absolutely beaten him and said, you sinned, your kids died because they sinned. And so Bildad the Brutal just really, really has been punching on Job. The next two chapters, Job's going to respond. And Job's going to say, listen, um, 
You know, I understand that, that unrighteous people can't approach God. And I understand that I'm, I'm like a worm before God Almighty. And I am so insignificant, but I have questions, and I wish I could get God to give me some answers. And he's going to suggest something in the course of chapters 9 and 10 that he says, I wish this could happen. And, uh, and yet he's going to contend. He's going to say, I don't know of any known sin that I'm harboring in my life. I, I don't know why, I'm being, why, why it would be that God has turned against me. And so what he does in this chapter is something that's unusual, is contrary to what I wrote in the bulletin this morning, I had the, the word suit, God wants to, or Job wants to suit God, uh, misspelling. Job wants to sue God. Job wants to take God to court. Now, Job's, you know, Job may have been the first one to do it, but there are a number of people who have, I was just reading this this afternoon, and thought, oh, I'll share it with you. Just talking about one news article out of Athens, Greece, told of a Romanian prisoner who, while he was serving time in jail, he filed suit in civil court against God. The state television picked up the story of the inmate named Pavel M., who was sentenced to serve 20 years in the Romanian city of Timisoara, and he apparently blamed God for all the troubles in his life and demanded that God be held accountable for failing to keep up his bargain. According to the authorities, the plaintiff claimed that when he was baptized in childhood, he entered into a legal contract with God. The contract, according to Bavel, had legal effects. God was obligated to protect him from the devil, but God had not followed through. So the lawsuit was submitted, but the civil court responded and said it was unlikely the case would ever be heard since it was impossible to subpoena God. True story, true story. There's a, a group in Canada that defends people against size discrimination. And so if you go online, you can read about this group that says, okay, we're, we're defending people who get discriminated because of their bulk. And so it goes on and it talks in, in their articles that are on the web. It talks about how people are facing prejudice because of their overweight condition. And there's a, there's a paragraph I want to read to you. In the paragraph in this website, it talks about they are taking and having people sign up on their website to support a lawsuit against God because God is the biggest discriminator against people who are overweight. And it goes on and says this. The largest, and I'm quoting the website, the largest offender of size discrimination is God. He gives them heart disease, strokes, high blood pressure, diabetes, cancer, gout, breathing problems. So we are suing God because he discriminates against overweight people. And then they go on, they say, in our opinion, this is what we want to ask. Hey, God, do you think defibrillators and insulin are free? Unquote. And then down below, there is a place that it says, join our class action suit against God for the burden he is placing on the health care system against overweight people. So this idea of suing God isn't new. There's a gal in Oakland, California, that um, she took God to court because a lightning bolt struck her house, probably burned up her she shed. And uh, so she is suing God for the damages, and she's filed a class action suit for six figures to get God to pay for her, uh, her property damage because it was his lightning that struck. And in her court case and in what she filed, she has suggested that if God doesn't show up for court, she wins automatically. And number two, that the payment should come from a church that is down the street that she has then filed suit against because they are in association with God and in cahoots with God. And so this is a pending court case. 
in Oakland, California. So we look at that and we say, oh, how silly. But Job, Job, and I, 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 this is me. This is the way I, I read it. I think Job is kind of tongue-in-cheek. Job is saying, if I could, I would like to have my day in court with God, not to sue and get something. That's not suits in those days. But to get God to explain why is this happening. To put him um, before the bar... They didn't have that term back then. But putting him before the bar so that he would have to tell me why. Why it's going on. And he talks about it in the entire chapter. He mentions this type of thing. There are several words used all the way through chapter 9 in particular that are legal terms that are unique in, in this chapter and then they show up again in chapter 13 where he has all these terms that talk about legally suing somebody, legally going to court with somebody, legally you know, saying, I need a lawyer, I need a defense person, I need you know, an advocate, um, I, need to, I want to be able to plead my case or to give that, that court setting. So taking that in what Job is talking about in this chapter and using so many legal terms from the ancient languages, he's, his intent is basically to say, okay, if I could, I would. I can't, so I shan't. But he's going to sue God. But then he makes that observation, he makes that comment. I'm giving you the overview of the chapter for the whole part. What he does is he says, even if I could take God to court, what good would it do? And that's where he goes in chapter 9. He starts off when he's when reading. If you just follow through, I'm going to paraphrase some of the things that he says. Job answer, he says, I know it is of truth, how that, but how should man be just with God? If he will contend with him, if he should sue him, he cannot answer him one of a thousand. God is wise in heart, mighty in strength, who hath hardened him against him and hath prospered. You know, no individual, no individual can stand up against God. So what he's going to basically do in saying, even if I could... Uh, take God to court, how am I going to win against him? I, I can't possibly contend with him. I can't out-argue God, is his point that he's making in verses 3 and 4. He is wise in heart and mighty in strength. You know, who is able to stand against him? Who is able to oppose him? And then he goes on, he says, besides, think about this. God is so powerful. He is so mighty. What could a court do to God? What could they force him to do? And he talks and you read through, now verses 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9. He's talking about the might, the majesty of God Almighty. He, is, he says he moves the mountains. He overturns them in his anger. He shakes the earth out of her place. The pillars thereof tremble, which, who commands basically the sun, and it rises not or seals up the stars, which alone he spread out the heavens, treads upon the waves. He makes, and he talks about those major, major stars, Articurus, our Orion, Pleiades, and he says he's the cha- you know, in the chambers of the south. God does great things past finding out, yea, the wonders without number, lo, he goes by me, I see him not. Well, that leads us into another thought. He says, even if I could take God to court, how can I get him there? He's invisible. You know, he's, you know, and again, it goes back to that thought that, that one court said, you can't serve God a subpoena. Because where is he? Where are you going to deliver to? And so Job makes that same comment. He says, you know, that, that he passes on also and I don't see him. God's invisible. So how is this possible to take him to court? And then he goes on and he makes some comments. Behold, he takes away and who can stop God? Who can call him into question? Verse 12. Who will say unto him, what are you doing? Verse 13. If God will not withdraw his anger, the proud helpers do stoop be under him. He's so mighty. He's so majestic. He's so sovereign that he overpowers everybody. So even if I could, what good would it do? 
And then he goes on, he makes this other comments that starting in the next few verses, he says, even if I could say, God, I'm going to make you, I'm going to force you in a court setting to reveal under oath, why are you doing what you're doing? He said, "I, I don't think, and now here's where he's discouraged. I don't even know if you'd listen to me, Lord. He starts talking about that where he says, verse 16, if I had called and he had answered me, yet would I not be believed that he had hearkened unto my voice. I'm not even convinced right now where I'm at that God would even give me time. And now he goes into a real dismal comments for the rest of this chapter and into chapter 10, where he's basically he's going to say, I'm not sure if God cares. I'm just not sure even if I could have a conversation with God, if we could meet in a court situation where there was an arbitrator and we had to talk. I'm not sure how far I'd get with God because I don't know if God would give me the time of day. And he's speaking from his heart. He basically says these things. He says, because I think, and this is where Job's comments now, he says, I think God is against me. Look at verse 17. For he breaks me with a tempest. He multiplies my wounds without cause. He will not suffer me to take my breath. He fills me with bitterness. If I speak of strength, lo, he is stronger or strong. And if of judgment, who shall set a time to plead? He goes on, if I justify myself, mine own mouth would condemn me. If I say I am perfect, it shall also prove that I'm, that prove to me I'm perverse. Though I were perfect, yet would I not know my soul, I would despise my life. This is one thing thereof that I, there I said it. He destroys the perfect with the wicked. If the scourge, scourge slays suddenly, he will laugh at the trial of the innocent. And he goes on basically talking. God's against me. That's the way I feel, he is saying. He goes a little bit further in verse 25. He says that, that God is what short days I have, God is shortening. My days are swifter than a post. They fly away. By the way, the post is a ship. Literally, some of you have that translation, uh, if you have a different translation. That is faster than one of the sailings, the speed ships that were well known into, into uh, the area of Egypt where they had these ships made out of reeds that would just sail along. He says, they flee away, they see, they passed away as those swift ships, as the eagle that hastens to the prey. You ever see a hawk come swooping down? You're driving down the road, you see a hawk, and it's just buzzing down, and it's coming, and it picks up a prey. He says, that's, that's how it seems like my days. They are just swooping down. They are just going really, really fast. And so he makes that comment. He says, if I say I will forget my complaint, y'all, he's, uh, I'll stop, and I comfort myself. Basically, uh, my days are going so fast. Yeah. No matter what I say, it's just, it's just like a vapor going by. And then he makes this comment, and he repeats it again. If I say, where he says, I'm afraid of my sorrows. I know that you would not hold me innocent. If I be wicked, then why do I labor? If I wash myself with snow water, make my hands never so clean, you would plunge me into the ditch. My own clothes shall abhor me. And so he's basically making that comment. He says, God, God, you're against me. You're against me. Look at, for he says, he is not a man as I'm a man, that I should answer him and that we should come together in judgment. And so his comments are just very, very, very dark. Let me see if I can illustrate where he's at. Um, there's a speaker that in our grief shared ministries that one of the speakers who comes up frequently on the videos is the name of Paul Tripp. Some of you have read his materials. Does excellent materials on parenting. Really good on parenting. Very practical from a Christian point of view. And he has a book about grief. 
And one of the books about grief, because he's gone through grief and a loss of one of his own family members, uh, I believe it was his son, um, that he's talking about how grief sometimes is, is just, it affects us that we can't even see God. And he makes, the, uh, he makes the, an illustration. He says it's like going to a dark, into a basement, and you have just those small little windows that are inside the basement. And so those little windows, you get covered up with shades, with darkening shades or curtains that are black, and so it's really, really dark inside this basement. And you know, you, you're so dark, you don't even know what's going on in the outside. And on the outside, the sun is shining brightly. It's a beautiful day. But you're in this basement. The shades are pulled down, and the curtains are drawn, and you, you don't even know if the sun is shining anymore. Because it's blocked. What little light there is is totally blocked by those curtains. And Tripp makes the comment, he says, that's the way grief can make you think. That's the way depression can make you think. They're like a shade that is blocking the sunlight to the point that you don't even think the sun is shining at all. And the sun is there. It's shining, but you can't see it and you're just like, it's just total darkness. He says, grief is the way that all of a sudden it is like that shade that blocks you from seeing God. And it's just, people can get to a point where it's just like, God, where are you? He's there. He's there. He's present. But you can't see him. And that's where Job's at. Job is at the point where Job is sitting in this darkness of his own grief, of his own pain, of his own agony. And he's saying, this is the way I think. It's not right. It's not the proper thinking that we would say, yes, this is spiritually on board with the Lord. He is confused. He is struggling. He has less than what we do. And he is saying, this is where I'm at. I'm questioning, God, can you please tell me? Can you, give me, can you lift the shade? Can you pull back the curtain and give me some answers? And because he's not getting answers, he is saying, God, you're against me. And he said, you know, God, and he goes on, God, I, I don't even know if I can even approach you the way that, I've, that I would like to because you're not a man as I'm a man. You're not a people that I can talk to. He talks about in verse 32 where he goes on and makes a comment. He's not a man that I should answer him, that we could come together and talk this through. Neither is there any daysman betwixt us. Does anybody have in verse 33, do you have a different translation? My translation says daysman. Does somebody have something different? Mediator, okay. What do you have? Arbitrator, okay. Um, in the Hebrew, that's the idea. It is the person who is coming and going to help out to, to get together. And so he's making this comment as if I don't have anybody to help me out. In, in fact, let me see if I can illustrate this way. The word that is used there is a term from the ancient Near East that what they would do is they would have an arbitrator if two people were going to court. Um, you know how you see pictures of people wanting to fight and struggle and somebody stands between them and puts their hands on their head to hold them apart? Do you have an idea what I'm talking about? Okay, you're holding two little kids apart and they're swinging fists, you know. Literally in that, the, the word that is used here is for somebody that's having their hands on their heads but it's not because they're trying to keep the people apart. And they would do this. In some of that ancient culture is the arbitrator would come up and at the beginning he would put his hands on the heads of the two different people. And it was symbolic of the idea that he's not trying to keep them apart. He is what? He's trying to get them together. He's trying to bring, he's going to be the one that's going to be able to help them resolve the issue. He's the arbitrator. He's the mediator. He's the daysman is uh, what some of us has for a translation. He's the one who has the authority to speak. 
He's above them. They'd be sitting down. He'd, he'd be standing up when they would do this little procedure at the beginning of their arbitration. And he's the one that's going to be the one that gives answers, and he's going to help resolve the issue. That's what he says. There isn't anybody. I don't feel like there's anybody to do this for me. Then Job makes that comment at this point that he says, I just feel desperate. Then he continues that same desperate talk when he says, my soul is weary of my life, verse, uh, verse 1 of chapter 10. I'll leave my complaint upon myself. I will speak in the bitterness of my soul. I will say unto God, do not condemn me. Show me whereof you contend with me. Please, please, please. Please tell me why this is happening to me. And then he goes on, makes comments. In essence, he's saying, I want answers. I really want answers, but I'm not getting any answers. Please. Again, he has less than you do. You have more understanding of why God does what he does and more explanation. You know. You know. You study your Bible, you get an understanding, you have at least six, if not seven, specific verses that indicate why trials come into your life. Job didn't have that. He didn't have any of that at this point. And so he's, he's struggling, he's stumbling. And then he goes on, he makes that same comment, develops a little bit more. Have you, God, have you eyes of flesh? Do you see as man seeth? Are thy days as the days of a man? Are your years as man's days? And he goes on, that you inquire after my iniquity and search after me, for thou knowest that I am wicked. And he goes on, he's basically saying, you know, God, you're not, you're not like me. You don't understand, and again, God does understand. We, we know that. But he is saying, God, do you know pain like I know pain? Do you understand what it's like to be a human with limitation? And so he's struggling through this. He's stumbling through this, and he's saying, you know, again, I feel, he makes the comment in verse 7. He says, I feel as that there is none that can deliver out of your hand. I have no help. I have no hope. And then he goes on and basically says in the next uh, bunch of uh, verses, he says that you made me, and he talks about your hands have made me, you fashioned me together round about, yet you destroy me. I beseech thee, you made me as the clay. And he's talking about God's creation of, of, of his life. And you will then bring me into dust again. Have you not poured me out as milk and curdled me like cheese? You have clothed me with skin and flesh, and yet you have fenced me in with these bones and sinews. You have granted me life and favor. Your visitation hath preserved my spirit, and these things hast thou hid in thine heart. I know that this is with thee, and if I sin, then you mark me. You target me, and you will not acquit me from mine iniquity. I don't feel like you're forgiving me, and I don't even know if I've done anything wrong. If I be wicked, woe unto me. And if I be righteous, yet will I not lift up my head. I am full of confusion. Therefore, see thou mine affliction. It is increasing. You hunt me as a fierce lion. And again, you show yourself marvelous upon me. And so he's going on. He's just talking. He says, God, I, just, I don't understand. I'm confused. I, I feel like you're totally against me. I don't understand why. And you feel distant. And he is pouring out his heart to the Lord. And basically, he concludes this chapter where he says, I don't have any hope. He says, basically, I want my life to end. Isn't this a really encouraging message? Isn't this one that you go, yes, I'm going to walk out of here, and this has just helped me through the week. Okay, Where he says, you, at the comment, he, at the end, he says, Are not my days few? Cease then, let me alone, that I may take comfort a little before I go whence. I shall not return. In other words, I want to die, even in the land, to the land of darkness and the shadow of death. And so that's where he ends up chapter 10. 
He's talking to the Lord. Again, the other guys don't talk to the Lord. But he's talking to the Lord and saying, Lord, I don't understand, I don't understand. I just, I feel overwhelmed. So we got Bildad, we got Zophar. Let me ask you this question. With what we've just seen this evening, where Job is, Job is, this is one of his downest moments in the whole book. Pretty down, pretty deep. What would you tell them if you were there? Now Zophar gets the chance to speak. We'll talk about him next week. What would you tell Job? What would you say to him? What would you tell somebody who's down? Job has already said, God, I don't know if you understand because you're not human like I'm human. And so, God, I don't know if there's a redeemer or somebody who is a a go-between. Aren't we blessed to have the answers to all that? I mean, seriously? Aren't we so much better? Because we can then, he's almost as if he's pleading for something to happen and here we are, we're on this side, and we say, it did happen. It did happen. God became a man so that he could be our... Yeah. We do have somebody who understands what humanity is like. He's, you know, he's touched in all points like we are, yet without... Yeah. So you and I here, we're saying, okay, Job, let's, let's just give you a little tidbit. This isn't what Zophar is going to say. This isn't what Bildad's going to say. But this is what we're going to say. If you run into somebody, if you have a job that you're trying to minister, if you are trying to yourself deal with some grief and some difficulties, when you think that God is not present with you, what would you tell that person? They say, I don't know if God's present with me. It's a really simple answer, right? Yeah, he really is. He really is. What verses come to your mind? I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. Lo, I am with you always. We have so much more than he had, and we can answer some of the questions. God never deserts or departs from us. Even when we feel like we're in the basement and the shades are pulled, where is God? Oh, by the way, he's in the basement with us. He's there. If somebody says to you these comments, I feel that life is hopeless. I feel there's no purpose in life. What would you say? Please, you, you, you've got to be able to answer this, folk. Okay, we're supposed to give an answer for the reason, the hope that is within us. What would you say to them? Is there purpose to life? Is there a reason for it? Okay, life isn't hopeless. There is a reason why we're here. Even though we might say, okay, I'm not, you know, I, I don't feel this way. I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare, not for calamity, to give you future and a hope. He gave that message to Jeremiah to pass on to people. When Jeremiah was feeling dismal, God is saying there is a purpose. There is a plan. Where Paul is able to say, and we're able to know where Paul says that, that he says, even when I found out that my trials weren't going to be taken, God responded and says, my grace is sufficient. We have that hope. We have that purpose. When somebody says to you, I don't feel like God cares, what's our quick answer? He does. He really does. God really cares. God really cares for us. He says, cast all your cares upon him, for he careth for you. Simple answers. But Job is overwhelmed by the situation. When you think you know better than God, that's where Job is. I'm asking. I just don't understand why you're doing. You and I say, wait a minute. We may not understand what God is doing, but we know this much. We know that God knows what he's doing, for all things work together for 
good. Okay, we understand that, and we understand this idea that we don't know better than God. There are many devices in a man's heart, God said. Nevertheless, the counsel of the Lord shall stand. Remember Proverbs 3, 5? Trust in the Lord with... And then what happens? Okay, he will make your path straight. Okay, is the idea. We know, we, we, we know this. We know that everything that comes into our life, it is for a benefit. It doesn't mean make, it's going to make us happy, but it's going to help us to achieve the ultimate purpose that God has for our life. As believers, we are to be conformed to the image of His Son, Jesus Christ. Whatever comes into our life, it is helping us to conform to become more Christ-like. So we have that idea that, that we could help Job. We could be able to give some answers. If you think that God doesn't hear your pleas, that God is distant and God isn't answering at all, we would answer by saying, He does hear. He does hear. He makes a comment in Psalms, The humble that shall see this and be glad, and your heart shall live that seek God, for the Lord hears the poor. He even hears those okay, and he, that are, he doesn't despise them. He listens to those that are the prisoners, those who are in difficult times, those who are not sinless, that the Lord hears. Oh, we have the words of Jesus Christ that, that talks about how we can call upon him. We have where Jesus is speaking in, the, in that Last Supper, and he starts off that whole, that whole diatribe that he's, that he's speaking to disciples, and he says, let not your heart... He says that twice in that entire text. And when he says it early in chapters 13, and then he says it again in chapter 14, and then he talks about, my peace shall be with you. In that whole entwining conversation about let not your heart be troubled and my peace is upon you, he talks about you can pray. You can pray. And whatsoever you ask in my name, I will do. So when somebody asks this question, they say, does God still love me? I don't feel like God loves me anymore. Your, a- your answer is, he does. What verse are you going to use? I'm sorry? I, I, I'm sure it's great, but I'm not hearing you. Okay. John 3.16, excellent. Others? Which one? Okay, that he cares for us. Okay, out of Philippians. Um, How about Romans 8? That extensive text that talks about what? I'm convinced that neither death, life, nor angels, principalities, nor things present, things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to do what? Okay. What about this? I don't feel like God understands my pains. Oh, he really does. Okay. Does he understand the struggles that we have? Well, that's what we read about in Hebrews 4. For we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities. Okay, that negative kind of confuses people at times when they first read it. The idea is we do have a high priest that does understand the difficulties. He was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. So what do we do? Let us come, therefore, boldly before the throne of grace to find help in time of need. Wow. We, we've got so much more than Job does. And thank God that he gave it to us. Thank God that when we think that there is no mediator, there is no daysman, there isn't somebody, we have one. We have that one who is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who can help reconcile, who, by the way, 
not only helps us to reconcile in salvation, but he also helps us to be able to deal with our everyday struggles, battles, sins. And when we fail, we can still go to him and he does what? If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us. That Jesus keeps on being our mediator between us and God. When you think that God is not for you, but totally against you, opposed to you, okay, the idea is God is still for you. What does Romans say? That same text that talks about the Holy Spirit is dwelling within us, that God who spared not his son shall also then give you other good things. He makes this comment. If God be for us, who can be against us? He that spared not his own son but delivered him up for us, how shall he not be also give us all things? The idea is that our God that we are serving, that we are worshiping, that we are talking about, he is for us. There's a gentleman who uh, lived in Scotland, and the story goes about this believer who, uh, true story, and I forget the man's name off the top of my head, I'm sorry. Uh, the gentleman was, was now in his middle age, and because he had suffered at the age of 15, he had gone swimming and broken his neck, and he was an invalid, for now he's going on in his fourth or fifth decade as an invalid, and uh, somebody came to see him. And they had heard about this man, that this man was always such an encouragement, such a blessing, and, you know, praising the Lord despite his being, being an invalid. And so one of, his, one of his visitors now is this preacher who's coming from another area, coming to visit, and he's talking to me. He says, listen, do you ever feel, do you ever feel tempted by Satan? Oh, he says, oh, all the time. He says, I sit here, you know, I lay here in my bed, and I can see out the window, and I see people riding by. Some of them are my neighbors that, when I was 15, we used to do things together. And now I'm here. I can't do what they can do. But I've seen over the years as they ride by that they grew, they got married, they had families, and they're enjoying all those things. And me, I, I'm here in this bed. So what happens when, when you think that and, and Satan wants you to curse God? He says, oh, 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 that, that's never happened that way where I curse God. He says, I always take them, you know, take Satan, that is. I always take him to some songs or some scripture that talks about Jesus dying on Calvary for me to have forgiveness. And he says, I am just absolutely convinced God loves me so much that despite being an invalid, Jesus Christ died and gave me forgiveness. He says, the big picture is this is only temporary, but God has given me eternal forgiveness. He's got it right. He had it absolutely right in that portrait. There's a, there's a man who, his name is up there, Matheson. He was growing up there in, in Scotland as well. And uh, when he was a young man going to school, they told him that he was having eye problems and they, there was limited what they could do. And so when he graduated from some of his understudies, he wanted to uh, continue after his college education to go into seminary. But his eyesight was failing him more and more. And so his sisters who lived with him, they helped do all of his reading. They helped him to memorize the Hebrew and the Greek studies that he would do. And so he finally graduated, got his seminary degree. But by the time he ended up with his seminary studies being completed, he was totally blind. His fiancée, when, you know, when he, it was announced, your, your sight will never recover, she said she's breaking off the relationship. She doesn't want to be married to a blind man. So he was just very, very hitting some very difficult times, blind, without this, this love of his life now. And uh, the Lord used it. The Lord helped him in his pastoring. Uh, he was one of the favorite preachers of Queen Victoria. She especially enjoyed 
his series out of one book of the Bible that he, she thought was his most excellent series, and she paid for the publication of his commentary on that book of the Bible. You want to take a guess of which book it was? No. No, it was Job. His commentary on Job that the queen paid for because she found it so, in, in, I was going to say insightful, that's a, not to be a pun. Um, so this blind man is going in things, are, he's got some ministry, and then he hit a moment that his one spinster sister, who was there living with him, she fell in love and her, her spouse wanted her to move and move out of the area. So now he was all alone, really all alone. And um, he said it was a dismal time, and it was, and yet, you know, I want to serve the Lord, I want to do it right. It was at that time that he sat down and he penned some words. You sing these words uh, from time to time. And he wrote a poem that ended up being put to music, but it's just a, thinking of the background to the story, it's impacting, where he talks about even though all these difficulties in his life, he made the words, he says, the love that will not let me go. I rest my weary soul in you. I give thee back the life I owe that in thine ocean depths it flows may richer fully be. O cross that lifts up my head, I dare not ask to fly from thee. I lay in dust life's glory dead and from the ground there blossoms red life that shall endless be. And he penned those words with the idea that I can rejoice even despite all of these different difficulties. And that's the message that Job needed and if we're going to be good counselors, not like Bildad and Eliphaz and Zophar, if we're going to be good counselors, when people come to us and say, I'm troubled, you've got a message. You've got a complete scriptural message that God isn't against them. They aren't going to be left alone, that he is going to help them. When you feel those moments that Job feels, you know, the Lord has made no mistakes, and when you say, God, I, I would just like to answer, you've got his word. And you can have your day of talking with him and getting answers out of his word. And it doesn't mean all the pain goes away, but it helps you to just get better handle on what is happening in your life. That Job is going to get a better handle. He's going to get it together. Even his emotions, it's going to all gel together and give him assistance. But this is where he's at. He has much less than we do, while he has much more than we do. We can learn. Job, you kind of predicted you needed this. God gave it, and we're the ones that are the benefits, beneficiaries. I'm glad I live today. I'm glad I live with full Scripture. I'm glad that I don't live back where Job did. And yet, I really appreciate Job being as authentic with the Lord, and it's good for us to realize that believers can hit those moments the answers come by just being persevering and going to the Word and talking to the Lord. And when you do, God gives us answers, gives them in the Word.